Welcome to A Little Louder Now, a podcast produced by The Bridge Initiative and FI360 Project. My name is Alex, and I'd like to welcome you to this month in women's history. Um, welcome to my colleague for today's podcast, Alicia. Hey. Hey. <laughs> Hi. Um, we're in September, and I'm literally vibrating with excitement to talk about Sandra Day O'Connor. Yes. Like, what? Wow. I I, I I did the research on this one, and I know that you have a background in law, and mm-hmm. so you didn't really need to do as much research as I did, but I have no background in law. And um, what an inspiring human being. It's very, very interesting. The reason that we're talking about Sandra is because she was the first woman to serve on the Supreme Court in the United States of America, and we chose to highlight her for her contributions to women in law. Why did we choose September specifically? Because she was confirmed by the Senate Judiciary Committee and the U.S. Senate in September of 1981. Yes. I, as you know, um, I love SDOC. And I uh, consider that I, you know, we started this in January. And I have exhibited extreme restraint in uh, talking, waiting to talk about Sandra until September. So... Um, it's noted. <laughs> Thank you. I, I wanted it to be noted. I, it's, I've written it down, okay? Um, Thank you. So I think her life is really interesting for a lot of reasons, but one of them is that she was born on this huge cattle farm in... Lazy Bee. Yeah, in, in... Well, I mean, she was born in El Paso, Texas, but she ended up growing up in Arizona. The, the ranch was called Lazy Bee. That's great. <laughs> She, um, but her father was a rancher and it was a 198,000 acre cattle ranch. Mm -hmm. And so, um, it was out in the middle of nowhere, obviously they had 198,000 acres. Yeah. It was like nine miles from the nearest paved road. (laughs) Yeah. And she, she didn't have running water or electricity until she was seven years old. And how interesting is it that, you know, she starts out there and she ends up in Washington DC on the Supreme court in a very like connected Lots of people in the small space sort of situation versus where she was born, which was like literally nobody around for the closest 198,000 miles. Yep. Yep. <laughs> um, so in any event, well, miles aren't acres. I so. mean, this her her childhood sounds like the life that you want. It is. <laughs> it absolutely is. When I read that, I was like, oh my gosh, that is so cool. Alicia's she, fondest wish is to buy like a compound, like a okay. parcel of land. Not a compound. And build a okay. compound. <laughs> it's not a compound. It is. <laughs> That's how you've described it to me. It's a house with solar panels and its own water. So if completely off the grid. Yes, completely off the grid and its own greenhouse. So if something, I don't have to see other people. If something were to happen, the zombie apocalypse. Yeah. The whole a whole electrical grid goes down because the sun flares. I don't know. Something happens. I can live in the woods by myself and my kids, my family, and, and like survive and we'd be fine. Like Sandra grew up. Yes. Okay. Back to Sandra. Back to her, her non zombie apocalypse compound. It's not a compound. <laughs> um so I'm telling yourself that. In any event, her family didn't have running water or electricity until she was seven and she hunted from a young age. She would you know, go hunting for jackrabbits for dinner. And I, I just think that's really, really interesting. She, because they had so much land, she began driving as soon as she could see over the dashboard and had to learn how to change flat tires all by herself, you know, as a child. Yeah. Because, you know, they didn't have cell phones and they were so far apart that she had to figure out how to get home. 
Yeah, she she had two younger siblings as well, a brother or a, sorry, a sister first and then a brother. Um, they were they were pretty far apart in age. Eight, they were eight and ten years younger than her. Mm-hmm. Um, her sister Anne Day, um, she actually also went into the legislature. She served in the Arizona legislature, um, wrote a book with her younger brother H. Allen Day um, about growing up on the cattle ranch. Um, it was called Lazy Bee. Growing up on a cattle ranch in the American West. Um, and it was about their childhood experiences on the ranch. So this mindset of service and of um, civic duty was in the family, right? Yeah. So I think that it's really important that her parents instilled that in them, obviously, because they both went into, two of the three children went into the legislature and being representatives and judges and, and representing the American people. And I think that that's really interesting. Yeah, I mean, and you're right that it was instilled in them by their parents from from their from their early schooling. Um, but it's, but I wanted you're about to talk about our grandmother, right? Yes. Yes, this is so interesting. Please tell me. Okay. <laughs> um, so Sandra, she lived in Opaso in Opaso um, with her maternal grandmother because there wasn't a good school around the ranch. Remember, and remember that ranch was enormous, enormous, and there was they were nine miles from the fir- from the a paved road. Um, so th- she lived with her maternal grandmother and attended the Radford School of Girls, which is a private girls' school um, in El Paso. the The family cattle ranch it was just it was so far from other schools, and the only time that Sandra was able to return to the ranch was really for holidays and for for the summer. Right, and so that's her early schooling, but then in eighth grade, she decides Mm -hmm. to go um, back to the ranch, and she rode a bus 32 miles to school, and she graduated sixth in her class at Austin High School in El Paso in 1946. So She actually graduated two years early. She graduated at age 16. Yes. Yeah. So she probably had a lot of time to study on the bus. Probably. 32 (laughs) miles every day. Um, So then she... Was that 32 miles every day or 32 miles there and then I'm, 32 miles? Home? Based on the size of their farm, I'm feeling it's 32 miles each way. Oh, my gosh. But that's just my assumption and not based in fact whatsoever. Yeah, if I was her, I would do my homework on the bus every single day. Straight up. Um, so not only was she admitted to a college. Up? I did say straight up. Okay. Not only was she admitted to a college, she was admitted to Stanford. Mm-hmm. So girl, girl smart. Yes. Um, she attended Stanford where she met her future husband, John J. O'Connor the third. Mm-hmm. Um, she got a BA in economics in 1950, and two short years later, she had her law degree from Stanford. Yeah, I mean, it t- usually takes people three years to go through law school and to get their law degree. Mm-hmm. Girl did it in two. Yeah. I love that. I love that. Yeah, and, and she did her undergrad in four years. So at this point, she's 22 mm-hmm. and has a law degree. <laughs> yeah. She... When she was at um, Stanford for law, she served on the Stanford Law Review with its presiding editor-in-chief, who was the future Supreme Court Chief Justice, William Rehnquist. Um, he was also the valedic- class valedictorian, and she dated him briefly during law school. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Remember that for later. Yes. Uh, that's important for later. Mutual appreciation. <laughs> uh, so, in any event, she... She has said that she graduated third in her law class, but Stanford said that they didn't rank students. But you know what? When you're a student and you're looking at your grades, you know who's above you and who's below you, so I believe her. You do. Um, Let's talk about 
Let, let's move, let's move past law school. So okay. let's let's talk about um, on she she married John Jay, of course. O'Connor the third. Spoiler alert. Her last uh, name's O'Connor and she married John Jay O'Connor. Yeah, so obviously. Um that she did that six months after graduating from law school. But I wanna talk about I wanna talk about after law school. So when when she graduated, um her classmate, um uh, we talked about a little bit earlier, William Reinquist, he went on to clerk for Supreme Court. Um SDOC had trouble finding a paying job as an attorney because she is a woman. Mm-hmm. So, so people kept telling her, well, we don't hire women. Well, yes. women can't be lawyers. Exactly. And there she just kept getting that bias yeah. and discrimination against women as attorneys. She kept getting that sentence and then kicked out the door over and over and over again. So she finally found employment as a deputy county attorney in San Mateo, California, after she offered to work for no salary and without an office. That's the only way they would hire her. She... We're going to talk about that in a second. But she was offered a job as a legal secretary, and she turned it down. Instead, she decided to do the difficult thing and work for no pay in order to prove herself an asset and and her worth. Can you imagine? I mean, I would just... how many other women have still to this day have to work twice as hard as a man to prove themselves an asset mm-hmm. and to prove their worth? Yeah. You and I actually have talked about this quite recently that, um, and Sally Krawcheck said this, um, I don't know where she got this from, um, we'll have to find it, but Sally, um, she was talking about how um, men get promoted on potential, women get promoted on uh, accomplishments, Mm -hmm. and that, I mean, that goes for hiring decisions too, I think. Right, and I... I think it's really interesting that somebody said, no, well, you can't be a lawyer, but you could be a secretary. Mm-hmm, I right. would have, like, my blood would have immediately boiled and I would have seen <laughs> red if somebody said that to me after I graduated third in my law school at Stanford. Right like, behind Are you kidding me? Request. Are you kidding me right now? <laughs> Absolutely not. There would be fire coming out of my eyes. Right? Oh, and for her to just be like, okay, no, I'm not going to take that job. I'll work for someone else for free without an office. To prove myself, mm-hmm. which is ridiculous that she had to do that, but good for her that she did obviously prove herself. And, and good for her husband for taking on the family finances so yeah. that she could do that, so that she could eventually prove herself as an attorney and, and, and get the job that she later got. Right. And then while she's working there, her husband gets drafted mm-hmm. and she's like, all right, well, you know what? I'm going to go with him. And so they moved to Germany, and she starts working as a civilian attorney for the Army's Quartermaster Corps. Yep. They were there for three years before returning to the States, where she went back to her home of Arizona in Maricopa mm-hmm. County. Uh, they wanted to begin their family. So imagine, okay, so imagine all that change. How difficult it would be to go to college when few people did, few women did, mm-hmm. get into law school at Stanford, graduate with honors at Stanford, get married immediately after unable to find a job and then when you finally have a job and you're finally proving your worth your husband gets drafted so you're like all right well i'm gonna roll with this we're gonna go to germany i probably have a better chance of getting a job there (laughs) and and she i think she was successful as a civilian attorney yes so then when they came back she um was practicing law while she was having children they had three sons and then she took five years off 
yeah, from the practice the, of law after the birth of their youngest to, um, well, their middle son, their middle son, excuse yeah. me, uh, to raise them essentially. Mm-hmm. So I think that that's really interesting too, that she took a break and she still made it to the Supreme court. Yes. Let's, let's just take a second to recognize that she did something amazing and that, that something that women everywhere in every, every single job, um, that they, we all struggle with taking time off to raise your family and then coming back and having a successful career. Right. Because most people, it doesn't work out that way. Right. You take time off. I think you guys talked about that. You and, um, and Tara and, uh, Keely talked about that on our Mother's Day episode. Right. You take time off, but not only are you losing out on those promotions, but most women that come back after their time off end up taking a lower paying job, like a lower position, lower paying job. So for her to take time off, basically to come back afterwards and end up in the Supreme Court, the highest promotion you can get is wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, that's amazing. And I'm, you know, she's yes. a hero. Get it, girl. Yeah. So anyway, she, at this time, she volunteered in various political organizations, such as the Maricopa, Maricopa excuse me, County Young Republicans, and served on the presidential campaign of Barry Goldwater in 1964. Yes, uh, 1965, she served as assistant jur- I can't even say these words, I'm like too excited. Assistant Attorney General of Arizona uh, from 1965 until 1969. Um, in, in 1969, the governor of Arizona, um, she appointed Sandra to fill a vacancy in the Arizona Senate. Um, she, she ran for and won the election for this, the seat the following year, which is cool. And then by 1973, she became the first woman to serve on Arizona's or any state's majority leader. So let's hold up for a second and talk about the governor of Arizona giving her a chance. Because that's huge. At the time, huge. there were really no women in law on, on that sort of level. So she was a trailblazer because she ended up getting into a position in the Arizona Senate... And then she ran for and won re-election for that seat based on her her qualities and what her proven worth instead of her promise. <laughs> so uh-huh. she really, it was very interesting to me that he gave her that chance. And I really, I think I, on behalf of women everywhere, appreciate him for that <laughs> because I think that that really changed the course of her trajectory. Yeah, it changed the course of her career hands down. Right. Um, while, while she was serving as the state majority leader for Arizona, she developed this, this reputation as a skilled negotiator. And I think more importantly, as a moderate, mm-hmm. um, she served two full terms and then she decided to leave the Senate. And think about, so this is 1973. Women were just about to get the right to own their own banking account mm-hmm. <laughs> without their husband. And this woman not only is the name in the marriage, right? Like, she's Sandra Day O'Connor, and it's Mr. Sandra Day O'Connor. <laughs> <laughs> because she's in politics, but she's developed a reputation as a skilled negotiator. You know, she has a reputation as being really great at her job. Mm-hmm. And so... I think it's really interesting that she is so ahead of her time and 
I, I said this before, but not many women were practicing law at the time. And people were saying, like, women can't handle the stress of this. They can't handle the mindset and the rationality. You know, what happens, you know, during what, what, what happens whenever they get upset? How will they handle the stress? That is so funny that you brought that up because Tara and I were talking about something very similar in terms of athlete, like female athletes. Mm-hmm. When we talked about Billie Jean King um, in our other September This Month of Women's History episode, um, and we were we were specifically talk specifically talking about uh, the um, the Battle of the Sexes match between Billie Jean King. Um, Do you remember what year that happened in? It was 1973. I it was September so. 20th, 1973. I thought it was. Okay. That's why when you brought that up, I was like, this is the time. This is the time. This is our moment. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> um, anyway, there's there's way too much going on. So we're, we're, we're going to fast forward just a bit. Just like one year. Uh, let's talk about 1974. Uh, SDOC, she was elected to the Maricopa County Superior Court. And she served there from 1975 until 1979, um, when she was actually elevated to the Arizona State Court of Appeals. And she served on the Court of Appeals Decision One, sorry, Division One, until 1981, when she was appointed to the Supreme Court by President Ronald Reagan. Right. So Reagan promised during his 1980 campaign to appoint the first woman to the court. So when he announced he would nominate O'Connor as an associate justice of the Supreme Court to replace Potter Stewart, who was retiring, um, she didn't know that she was even a finalist until the day before he announced it publicly, that she was the one. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I thought it was really funny that, um, and you dug this up, where uh, Reagan wrote in his diary um, the day before they announced it, um, July 6th, 1981. I'm going to use this quote. So, quote, called Judge O'Connor and told her she was my nominee for Supreme Court. Already the flack is starting, and from my own supporters. Right to life people say she's pro-abortion. She declares abortion is personally repugnant to her. I think she'll make a good justice. End quote. Yeah, and so I think it's really interesting. So that is that was on July 6th, 1981. He formally nominated her on July 7th, 1981. Um, some religious groups opposed her nomination because they suspected correctly, that she would not be willing to overturn Roe versus Wade. And so in the term, you know, her, the conversations around her Senate Judiciary Committee hearings, mm-hmm. um, her confirmation hearings, it was all about abortion. All they didn't, it. they didn't care about anything else. All they, all they asked her about was abortion. And I thought it was really interesting that they didn't really ask her about anything else. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I mean, it, and it lasted three days. It was actually the first televised one. Yes, it was. It was the first televised one. And it, I know that abortion is such a hot topic issue even still today. But when she was asked to refuse to telegraph her views, um, she, was, she was really careful to not leave the impression that she supported abortion rights um yeah the way that she handled that that whole thing um i think grace demonstrated her (laughs) her grace it demonstrated her um abilities to cross the aisle Mm -hmm. you know even um you know on while she was serving as a supreme court justice she was kind of known for um you know being unpredictable and 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 being a moderate 
And a swing vote. And she was a swing vote, yes. Um, But regardless, um, the Judiciary Committee, they eventually approved um, Sandra with 17 votes in favor and only one vote of present. And so that was on um, September 12th? Because on September 9th it started. Um, One of the things that she said was, the power I exert on the court depends on the power of my arguments, not my gender. Yes. And I thought that that was... A big thing to say, an important thing to say, not that she should have had to say it. It was a lot like when JFK was running for president and he said um, people were causing a ruckus because he was Catholic. And he said, mm-hmm. why would I wouldn't ask the Pope for advice on the U.S. government? Like, he should have had to say that. But I thought it was interesting that he he said it in that way. And mm-hmm. I really I saw an allegory between that and, and the way that she said, you know, my gender has nothing to do with the way I sit on the court, it's going to be my arguments. So I was very impressed by that. So in any event, she was confirmed by the U.S. Senate on September 21st with a vote of 99 to 0. Um, Senator Max Baucus of Montana was absent, but he sent her a copy of A River Runs Through It by way of apology. (laughs) So cute. I thought it was adorable. So after all of that ruckus and arguing and a couple of politicians actually called the white house to complain directly to reagan yep um they still voted yes yeah they did it was she won them over yeah unanimous um and in her first year on the on the court she received over sixty thousand letters from the public more than any other justice in history it's amazing yeah imagine how many of those letters came from little girls that were like i didn't even know i could do this yes (laughs) so remember william rehnquist I do, in fact. Her, her buddy friend. Yeah. Um, from law school. Yes. Well, he is also on the court at this point. He He's chief, chief justice. Yeah, chief. yeah. And so in her first three years at the court, she voted with him pretty regularly. And I don't think it was because of any infatuation or anything like that. It was just they had the same mindset on things. Mm-hmm. And um, but she in, in her time on the court she voted with him more than anybody else yep and as the court's makeup became more conservative she became more seen as a swing vote and while she did vote more with the conservative side of arguments um she would sometimes side with a liberal but it was she usually sided conservative but she was a moderate Mm -hmm. yeah and on those like really contentious decisions they were always nervous about how she was gonna come Uh down yeah Well, and during this time, she was diagnosed and successfully treated for breast cancer. She also had her appendix removed. Yeah. Yeah. So in 1988, that's when that happened. So Mm -hmm. imagine, imagine having people say, I don't think you can emotionally handle being on the Supreme Court. And then not only are you sort of like a maverick, nobody knows (laughs) how you're going to vote. I see. I appreciate that because that meant that she took every case on a case by case basis. She did. She didn't just like, well, I'm a no on one of these, so I'm a no on all of them. You know, she on a case by case basis, and she was known for how well she researched and was thorough with her opinions on every single case. You know, she took, like you said, every single case individually, and she she looked at the facts of that case and not just uh, jurisprudence. You right, know, not just case precedent. She looked at. I mean, she took that into account, but of course, it, but she also looked at the case itself as well. And I, she also was known for um, voting with her gut, mm-hmm. which I think is really cool because a lot of women don't do that. 
But she also used facts with her gut. Well, yes. Yeah. It wasn't yeah. like... It was like trust but verify, like that yeah. saying. Yeah. But imagine the people that... Imagine how... It's silly the argument is that, oh, you emotionally can't handle being on the Supreme Court or being a judge or being a lawyer. And then she's on the Supreme Court. She's the one that is known for being thoughtful and researching while she's being treated for breast cancer and having her appendix out. You're telling me I can't emotionally handle this? Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) I really, it just shows how silly that argument is. Agreed. The gender should never be a part of the discussion. No. So Um, tell, tell us about some of the notable cases. So... If you want to learn more about these, you can do so on your own time. We're going to give a really high level on these because yeah, we'll link out some of the cases. Techie, techie. Yeah, no, no tech talk, (laughs) no, no legal jargon, but yeah, uh, we'll link out to some of the cases that we found really interesting um, in the in the description of the podcast. So some notable cases in which she joined the majority of a five four decision were McConnell versus the FEC. That one was soft money contributions in a campaign finance bill. Gruder versus Bollinger, which was a discrimination case against um, the University of Michigan, their law school. <laughs> Lockyer versus Andrade. Um, this one was very interesting to me, and I want to give a little bit more on it. Okay. Um, she wrote the majority opinion with the four conservative justice concurring that a 50-year-to-life sentence without parole for petty shoplifting of a few children's videotapes under California's three-strike law was not cruel and unusual punishment under the Eighth Amendment because there was no clearly established law to say that it was cruel mm-hmm. and unusual punishment. So basically, this father, who was a nine-year army veteran, who was a Latino, he was a father of three, will be eligible for parole in 2046 at age 87 for stealing three children's videotapes. Because of the three-strike law. Because of the three-strike law. Mm -hmm. And so I thought it was really interesting that because there is no law holding that up. And, like, obviously that sounds silly to me. (laughs) He would be in prison for 50 years. But the law is the law. And if you don't have a law outlining what is going to be applied to the three-strike law and what is not, that's basically why they decided the way that they did, right? Mm Mm-hmm. So, that's kind of on California. <laughs> Look, you know how I feel about rules. <laughs> I I follow the rules. I, rules are meant to be followed. Um, I like rules that are... I like to bend rules, but uh, when it comes to the law specifically, I believe in the law. Mm-hmm. And in this case, it, it really highlights a hole in a California law. Mm-hmm. Because they're... I mean, they're... There are problems with the law. There are yeah. problems with laws. There are but problems you, with our judicial system. The great system, thing about laws is you can pass new ones that exactly. fix the problems. It's yes. just getting them passed is the problem. Yes. But- <laughs> yes. And, and and I want to tell you about um, a couple of other cases that, that she um, presided over. Um, Mississippi University for Women versus Hogan. was um, It was a gender discrimination suit. Um, a man sued the university after he was denied admission to the traditionally all-female nursing school. Oh, I, this one is interesting. Gender discrimination, man. I love gender discrimination law. It's not even actual, like, law. But anyway, uh, the court ruled um, that the school had to admit qualified men um, to, the pro- to the school um, program, I guess. Um, and SDOC, she, she reasoned that not allowing qualified men perpetuated limiting stereotypes. Boom. Boom. 
I mean, which goes back to her argument when she was in, in front of the Judiciary Committee for her, for her confirmation hearings that her gender should have no um, rule. You know, I'm sure, I mean, have any effect on... In her personal experience. Yes. I'm sure she empathized with the gentleman who was denied because she had so many doors slammed in her face when she wanted to be a lawyer. Yes. I'm sure she saw the parallel. It goes both ways. You yes. Know, you, we women, we want equality, but we also, that means equality for men too. Yes. And, they can... and limiting the stereotypes for mm-hmm. men, limiting stereotypes for women. We, we want to eliminate them. Um, right. And I think that that was just really cool. And it showed that she was committed to that. Um, two other cases um, that she um, she was on that were uh, protecting women's rights. Um, was there were some girls that were being harassed by school classmates and um, the court and SDOC, they held the school liable for the harassment, which I thought was just really cool. Mm-hmm. Um, Zellman versus Simmons-Harris. Um, that one is school vouchers for religious schools and the First Amendment. United States versus Lopez. Um, that is the the constitutionality of gun-free school zones. Um so, I mean, these are, these are not light things to talk about. Um, the final one I want to talk about is one I think we all know about, which is Bush versus Gore. Yep. So she was in the 5-4 majority with the conservatives on this one. Uh, it was a December 12, 2000 rule on the Bush versus Gore case. We all know what happened here. Um, I think it's interesting that... Um, she sided with the conservatives on that one because she is a swing vote. They weren't really sure where she was going to go. Um, I don't really want to talk about hanging chads. <laughs> Please don't. <laughs> but in any event, um, she was upset with the media initially because they had announced that Gore had won Florida when that wasn't actually mm-hmm. true, true yet. And yeah. so... She was actually surprised the decision became controversial, and she said that some people in Washington stopped shaking her hand after the decision, and somebody confronted her about it at the Kennedy Center. (laughs) (laughs) Um, There was also a little bit of drama in her personal life regarding this. Yeah, 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 regarding this, because at, you know, some party they were at. um, It was an election night party. Yeah, yeah. her husband, John O'Connor, mentioned to others that her desire to step down. But then when they called Gore as the winner, he was like, I guess we're not going to Arizona for four years. <laughs> yeah, he, he basically said that he his wife wouldn't want to retire, that she'd be reluctant to retire if a Democrat were in the White House and, and, and would choose her replacement. So she, um, you know, he speculated that it would be a couple more years, four more years, um, if Gore won. Um, obviously, he didn't. Uh, Justice O'Connor, she did not comment to that effect. Um, he should have just kept his mouth shut. I mean, yeah, but anyway. Uh, People said that she should have recused herself because she had a perceived bias. Um, I don't know if that's true or not, but, you know, the decision is the decision. Yes, yeah. She was um, She was known for, I mean, she was known for a lot of things, but she was especially unpredictable in cases regarding the First Amendment Establishment Clause. Mm-hmm. Um, she avoided 
ideology a lot. This is where she applied that case by case. Yeah, exactly. But it's really interesting because a lot of, um, you know, the research that you did, a lot of the research that I have done on her, it it talks a lot about it. It talks a lot about how, um, you know, especially with her, the First Amendment, you know, what... Like, yes, she had a bunch of cases that regarded First Amendment Establishment Clauses. But Mm -hmm. um, I think that that's interesting that that's kind of what she's more known for. Right. And she always tried to carefully deliberate on her decision because of she wanted to make sure that the decision benefited individual rights and backed up the Constitution. So, but she... She viewed the Constitution as being, like, this ever-changing, ever-evolving, like, work-in-progress type of um, document, which is not what is taught in constitutional law. Right. And she's she became known for her pragmatism and how well she documented and um, researched her opinions, but they weren't emotional. Mm-hmm. They were very factual, and I thought that that very was really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, on February 22nd, t- 2005, Rehnquist and Stevens, who were senior to her, were absent. She actually became the senior justice, mm-hmm. presiding over oral arguments in the case of Kilo versus City of New York. It's not New City of New York, City of New <laughs> London. And she was the first woman to do so before the court, which I thought yeah. was really interesting. Um, and let's talk about let's talk about her being yes. the first woman on the Supreme Court. So mm-hmm. we've talked about the door shutting in her face and how she felt like she... Not that she needed... I mean, she felt like she needed to prove that she could do it. But she knew it was not just her, right? Right. She knew that she had to demonstrate that women could do the job of justice. They were physically capable, mentally, emotionally capable of doing this job. And there were some practical issues. Like, for example, there was no female Supreme Court restroom. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> initially. near the courtroom. Yeah. 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 So it's not like she could just bounce out. <laughs> And go to the restroom. She had to, like, like plan them. Because <laughs> they, were, they were a hike. Uh, two years after uh, she joined the court, the New York Times actually published an editorial which mentioned the, quote, nine men of the SCOTUS, uh, which is the Supreme Court of the United States. And <clears throat> O'Connor, she, she responded <laughs> with a letter to the editor reminding the Times, I'm sure very gently, mm. um, oh, yeah. in, her, in her beautiful, um, graceful way, that the court was no longer composed of nine men and referred to herself as F-W-O-T-S-C, first woman on the Supreme Court. Can we just clap? <laughs> Can we just slow clap? That's, that is like, <clears throat> excuse me. <laughs> I'm here. Yeah. And I'm not leaving. <laughs> so she, there was such a media media clamor around her. And we, we mentioned that she got more letters than any other Supreme Court justice ever. Yep. Um, so she really felt some relief from all of this clamor around her when the notorious RBG was added to the court as an associate justice in 1993. So in May of 2010, she actually reached out to Elena Kagan and said, look, this is going to be really unpleasant for you because they really make it difficult for a woman to end up on the Supreme Court. And I'm paraphrasing that. That's not exactly what she said, but... Not not an exact quote. (laughs) Yeah, she wrote to her about... uh, She warned her about the unpleasant process of confirmation hearings, and unpleasant is in quotes, but, like, I'm sure it was more of, like, a everything you've ever said is going to be drug up because it was for her. Mm -hmm. Um, So she definitely saw her position as the 
how do you F W O T S C? Yes. How many letters is that? It's like half the alphabet. She definitely saw her position there as not just her position, but as a door opening for all women in law and in the judicial system. Yeah. So I thought it was really interesting. Um, she wrote a couple books. We talked about the first one with her um, brother mm-hmm. about Lazy Bee Farm, but then she wrote one in 2003. It was called The Majesty of the Law, Reflections of a Supreme Court Justice. And then she wrote a children's book in 2005 called Chico, mm-hmm. which was named for her favorite horse, who gives an autobiographical description of her childhood. So She also wrote a book in 2013 that was called Out of Order. Stories from the History of the Supreme Court. That one's like her most popular book. Yes. That's the one that everybody is like, oh, the author of Out of Order. Mm-hmm. Okay, she's more than that. <laughs> um, I'm going to talk later about another book about her, but okay, it's not um, her book. Right, but those are just the ones that she wrote. Yeah. And, you know, by 2005, she was, she wanted to retire. She was ready. Yeah. yeah. And the composition of the court had been basically unchanged for 11 years. And it's like the second longest period in American history without It's a long time. Change. It's a long time. So her buddy Rehnquist was re- widely expected to be the first justice to retire during um, George W. Bush's term, W, w. as we call him, mm-hmm. um, owing to his age. And he has had a battle with cancer going on at the time. But she was also looking to retire. So she reached out to him. She wanted to make sure they weren't going to retire at the same time. Yeah, and she didn't want to have two vacated seats. Um, that's unfair. <laughs> yeah, there, there was also rumors at the time. There were talks about um, her running for president. <laughs> um, she wasn't I laugh because it would be amazing, but people would have lost their minds. <laughs> it would have been great um, to have her run as a Republican candidate. Yeah. Um, but she wasn't interested, obviously. Right. She just wanted to be out of the spotlight. I mean, imagine going from a 189,000 acre ranch where you literally don't see another human being for hours to DC where you can't get away from people. She probably just wanted some quiet and some peace. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, her, her husband was also, um, she wanted to leave to really spend time with her husband because he was suffering from Alzheimer's disease. And anyway, um, she announced... Her intention to retire July 1, 2005, um, she wrote a letter to President Bush um, stating that um, that she wanted to retire from active service and it would take her, her retirement basically would take effect upon the confirmation of her successor. So she wasn't just going to leave him high and dry. She would stay on until there was somebody else. Yeah, which is kind of like, it, it's, it's kind of a breaking of uh, precedent, really, because um, you know, the usual practice of Supreme Court justices is that they serve until death or you know, in near incapacitation. Which is terrifying. Well, I mean, it's <laughs> a whole other conversation. But what what does near incapacitation mean? Does that mean like the inability to make sound decisions? Yes. Uh, okay. <laughs> okay. July nineteenth. So this was July July first, July nineteenth, um, President W. Bush. W. Um he nominated the DC circuit judge John Roberts to succeed um, SDOC. Um, Didn't call her, though, because she found it how to over the radio. <laughs> yeah, I mean, she did feel like he was an excellent, highly qualified choice, um, being that he, he had argued numerous cases before the court during her tenure. Um, so he, she knew who he was. But he wasn't a woman. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that it's right of her to be a little bit disappointed that her replacement wasn't a woman. Mm-hmm. 
Um, yeah, so she, so she was expected to leave the court before the next term started on October 3rd, um, but the uh, Supreme Court Chief Justice William Rehnquist, her buddy, um, had died on September 3rd, which created the immediate vacancy of the court. And so remember, she didn't want to have um, two Rehnquist vacancies. And yes, yeah, she didn't want to have two vacancies. Um, so two days later, um, President Bush withdrew Roberts as his nominee for her seat and appointed him to fill the vacant seat of, of Chief Justice. And uh, then he, he did. He did nominate a woman. Yes. Yes, he did. Yes, he did. Um, but there was uh, a lot of controversy. And, and yes. she ultimately said, you know, what, just take my just rescind my nomination because yes. it was just too much. And um, he ended up nominating um, Third Circuit Judge Samuel Alito mm-hmm. on October 31st, Halloween. Uh, to replace um, SDOC, and he was sworn in on January 31st, 2006. So, yeah. as you probably know, he ended up being on the court. Mm-hmm. Um, I do know. And after retiring, she continued to actually hear cases and rendered over a dozen opinions in federal appellate courts across the countries. She would fill in as a substitute judge when vacations or vacancies left their three-member panels understaffed, mm-hmm. which is cool of her. It's very cool of her. She wasn't just like peace. Um, she, I mean, I think that it, it, that demonstrates her commitment to her serving her country. Yeah, you know, and yeah. and in, in her idea of country first. Mm-hmm. And I wonder how the breakdown of that is. You know, like she she ends up on this appellate court with a couple of people who have just been promoted up to that, and she's SDOC. And so you're like, well, whatever you think <laughs> is fine SDOC. with me. Yeah. <laughs> um, she also, I really liked that she didn't follow the silence mentality after she retired because a lot of presidents and chief justices and justice of the supreme court Mm -hmm. have a a lot of politicians a lot of people in the public eye i'm not going to comment on the things that happen after i leave yeah like i'm not involved in that Mm -hmm. but she didn't (laughs) and i like that because she gave opinions on some of the things that she felt were wrong Mm -hmm. you know for um the Citizens United ruling, I think that everybody knows about, is the corporate political spending ruling. Um, she said that the court had created an unwelcome new path for wealthy interests to exert influence on judicial elections. Yeah. And then in, um, what was it, 2016, when Antonin Scalia passed away, um, and, and President Barack Obama was debating about whether or not to, you know, replace him or to wait until after the election um, that was in November of 2016. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, SDOC, Ma- excuse me, Maverick SDOC, um, <laughs> she, she spoke out like mere days after Antonin Scalia's death and she opposed Republican arguments that the next president should get to fill the vacancy. She actually argued in favor of President Obama. She said, I, I think we need somebody there to do the job now. You know, let's, let's get on with it. Let's do this. Um, and, she, and she, she, yeah, she actually said, um, you just have to pick the best person you can under the circumstances as the appointing authority must do. And so when somebody, you know, this is no longer a quote, when somebody passes away, it's up to whoever the appointing authority is at the time to appoint someone. You don't get to pick and choose who gets to appoint who when. And, um, so she said it's an important position and one that we care about as a nation and as a people, as I wish the president well as he makes these choices and goes down that line because it's hard. Yeah. Yeah. 
which I think is a very rational argument. I agree. I agree. <laughs> but without getting political, let's right. let's talk about her, so, her reflections. Yeah, she had opinions as to whether judges faced a rougher time in the public eye, um, you know, in in today's society than they did in the past, which I think that is a unanimous yes. Mm-hmm. Um, but that, for whatever reason, caused some ruckus and uproar amongst some people. And so... Um, I don't know why, because I think with the digital age and computers and all of that, it's obvious that they probably do have a rougher time. Yeah, They're just she, more accessible. There's two, there's a lot of accessibility that wasn't there in the previous in, in mm-hmm. previous administrations. So um, let's 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 fast forward just a teeny bit. Let's talk about presidential presidential Medal of Freedom. Okay, um, she was awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom on August twelfth, two thousand nine, by uh, President Barack Obama. He mm-hmm. said of her, uh, "quote." A judge, an Arizona legislature, cancer survivor, child of the Texas Plains, Sandra Day O'Connor is like the pilgrim in the poem she sometimes quotes who has forged a new trail and built a bridge behind her for all young women to follow. Mm-hmm. How is that not <laughs> in it's line inspiring. with us? That, that's, it's extraordinarily inspiring. He also made a joke about how she should have... Um, he doesn't know how much of a legal secretary she would have made, but she basically made one heck of a Supreme Court justice. So he made he nodded to uh-huh. the her past, basically the gender discrimination yeah. she experienced when she was younger, and I thought that that was interesting as well. Um, so she she had some feedback on like after being off the court for a while, she said one of her regrets was that. The Supreme Court even heard Bush versus Gore mm-hmm. because it gave the court a less than perfect reputation and it, and it stirred up the public. And she said, maybe the court should have said we're not going to take it. Goodbye. It turned out that the election authorities in Florida hadn't done a really good job and kind of messed it up. And probably the Supreme Court added to the problem at the end of the day. I don't think it was because it was a more conservative lean that they took. I think it was more because they were dismantling many of the decisions that she played a huge part in or wrote Mm -hmm. and so it wasn't like a conservative versus liberal it was more of like a seeing your life's work being dismantled in front of you yeah i mean how would anybody feel i mean i i would feel like it was personal Mm -hmm. right so um in february 2009 she she launched our courts which was a a website that she created to offer interactive civics lessons to students and teachers because i think she was intelligently concerned about the lack of knowledge among most young Americans about how the government actually works and what their role is and their civic duty is. So um, she also served as a co-chair with the Lee H. Hamilton for the campaign for civic missions of schools. In 2009, she actually went on The Daily Show with Jon Stewart um, to promote this website. And in 2009, they added interactive games. So the initiative... um, expanded and became iCivics in May 2010 and continues to offer free lesson plans, games, and interactive video games for middle and high school educators to use in their classrooms. Yeah, I mean, how important is civics? It's so important, and I I know very little about it. Like, all I had was a section in seventh grade. Really? Yeah. Oh, man, we had to take, I had to take civics and all kinds of histories, government, Uh, No, I didn't have to take any of that. I took like a three-week period about how important it is to vote. 
in seventh no. grade. It's so it's so important to understand how our government works. I mean, I don't. I think that it's important to understand. Um, like, let's understand our history. Let's understand the fundamentals. Let's understand the building blocks and the foundation of our government and our and our our United States of America, so that we can form fully educated opinions, whatever those opinions are, you know, you're, everyone's entitled to their own opinion. Everyone's entitled to, um, think and feel and, and breathe their own way. But uh, having a basic understanding, a basic education of civics and uh, of our, of our government, I think is so incredibly important. And she, you know, when she announced her, her retirement in late 2018, um, well, this is her retirement from public eye. From public eye, yes. In late 2018, she well, she also was retiring from iCivics as, as mm-hmm. well. Um, she said, um, and I love this quote, she said, quote, It's time for new leaders to make civic learning and civic engagement a reality for all. I hope that I have inspired young people about civic engagement and helped pave the pathway for women who may have faced obstacles pursuing their careers. I want you to know, SDOC, um, in case you ever listen to this, you have. Yeah. I want you to know that um, you made civics important. Um, you made made one young girl uh, passionate about civics, about the law, and um, about people and other women who have paved the way for, right. for other women. She also said, we pay a price when we deprive children of the exposure to the values, principles, and education they need to make them good citizens. Yes. So I think that that's really, that really strikes me because she's right. If you don't understand how the law works and how the government works, then you feel like your vote doesn't matter. And so then you don't vote. And then you don't have a say in who is running our country. Mm-hmm. And that's a sad place to be. Yeah. <laughs> So, um, side note, every vote counts. Every vote matters. I am a huge proponent of voting. Um, it is not just in presidential duty. elections. No, vote, in all of them. Vote for every <laughs> single election. It is your civic duty. It is so incredibly important. If you want to get educated, go to icivics.com. Mm-hmm. Go, go learn about civics. It's yeah, it's for, you know, middle and high school st- students, but if you've never been educated about it, start somewhere. Right. And so like like Alex mentioned, in October of 2018, she announced her effective retirement from public life. She disclosed that she had been diagnosed with an early stage of Alzheimer's like dementia and she didn't she didn't want to be in public eye anymore, which you can blame her. Um, She said of it, I will continue living in Phoenix, Arizona, surrounded by dear friends and family. While the finer chapter of my life with dementia may be trying, nothing has diminished my gratitude and deep appreciation for the countless blessings of my life. Yeah, and the Chief Justice John Roberts, who replaced William Rehnquist, remember, um, he he praised Sandra um, in a statement, calling her a, quote, towering figure and a role model not only for girls and women, but for all of those who are committed to equal justice under the law. I think one of my favorite quotes by her is... Society as a whole benefits immeasurably from a climate in which all persons, regardless of race or gender, may have the opportunity to earn respect, responsibility, advancement, and remuneration based on ability. Yes. Um, she, I, she was so, so much of a proponent of education and, and educating people on the, portent, in the importance of the law, both in the U.S. and internationally, and... Um, I think that that just, it shows. I mean, she, 
Also, you know, in 2009, she founded um, a 501c3 a nonprofit organization that's, it's, it's, I mean, it's named after her, Sandra Day O'Connor Institute. Um, you know, in the programs that they have, they're dedicated to promoting civil discourse, civic engagement, civics education. And she served, I think, um, I don't think she serves anymore, no. um, as the founder and the advisor to the O'Connor Institute. She served as the board of director of Justice at Stake, which is a national judiciary reform advocacy organization. Um, she was the, the co-chair for the National Advisory Board at the National Institute for Civic Discourse. So this is actually, this institute was created at the University of Arizona Mm -hmm. after Gabrielle Giffords was shot in 2011 um, to encourage more civil discourse and less violence in politics. Um, So I think that her love for civic duty and um, the United States and the Constitution is clear in the things that she put her time into, right? absolutely. So, I mean, I'm not really sure how you condense all that she's done into... A little two-sentence blurb about no. her legacy. <laughs> no. But I'm going to try. Okay, you try. <laughs> she, Sandra Day O'Connor, opened the door for women to be judges, from the role of deputy county attorney to Supreme Court justice and legislators in a time when women weren't considered for those roles. Her thoughtful and well-researched opinions showed that women could not only handle the rational arguments of the law, but excel in it. That was a good... Thank you. That was a good two-sentencer. Thank you. Um, I... I mean, talking about her legacy, I mean, she's left such, like, such a mark on the U.S. um, government. I keep using this word, but civics. Mm -hmm. Um, Education. um, You know, I I think that, I mean, you and I have talked before about how um, both of us were actively pushed away from... um, avenues and, and careers men's and jobs in, in quote men's unquote. jobs yeah um <laughs> i was i was talked out of going to law school by one of my advisors in college um that i mean he ended up being right um but at the time all i could think about was scoc and ruth bader ginsburg you mm-hmm. know the notorious rbg yeah. and the maverick scoc all mm-hmm. i could think about was that i was disappointing them you know all i could think about was how much they had impacted me and how much I admired them and respected them and and how much of, of an impact they had on my life and and the way that I wanted to live my life and you know that that made me angry mm-hmm. made me angry for a while but um, you know I'm so I'm grateful that we finally get to talk about SCOC and uh, you know next year we scheduled in notorious RPG yeah <laughs> uh, which I was really excited about um, that one's gonna be fun too but I I just, she's such a hero for a lot of people. Um, you know, I went to an all-girls college, and um, I studied law, I studied politics, I studied um, history, and SDOC was part of the, the curriculum. Um, and so to be able to talk about her was a real treat. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that she's left an indelible mark upon politics Absolutely. and the law. Yeah. You know, literally in her decisions with the Supreme Court, but... Also, as a first woman, the F-W-O-T, S-C-U-V-S, I don't know, whatever the letters were, first lady of the Supreme Court, first woman of the Supreme Court, um, she has changed the United States of America Mm -hmm. for good. Yeah. So we toast to you, SDOC. Yes. Thank you for all of the trails that you have blazed um, for being the first woman Supreme Court justice. 
to you. There we go. So, Alex. Yes. I'd like to thank you for spending your time with me today. It Um, It was lovely. So this is a little louder now. This is a podcast by the Bridge Initiative and FI360 Project. So uh, thank you, the listeners, for taking some time with me today to talk about the amazing Maverick SDOC, Sandra Mm -hmm. Day O'Connor, if you didn't know that, you know. (laughs) Um, Stay tuned for more podcasts featuring great women from financial services talking about a variety of topics. If you'd like to catch up on what we're doing, or if you have questions, topic ideas, or if you just want to be a part of the community, you can visit us at fi360bridge.com to check out previous podcasts, webinars, and blog posts. You can email us at bridge at fi360.com. You can connect with us on Twitter and Insta at fi360bridge. You can also support the podcast without spending a dime. And I'm cheap, so I like to not spend a dime. (laughs) By leaving us a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, we want you all to get a little louder now.